We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your living breath that breathes life into us. We ask God for Your Holy Spirit to fall upon us that we may hear the things that You want us to hear and learn in a supernatural way. Not just in an intellectual way, but that You would speak to our spirit and to transform our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last week we looked at uh, major turning points and how chapter 3 was a major turning point because God spoke to His people once again after a period of when communication was really rare with His people. And God communicating with His people might not be a major turning point for secular historians, but even among secular historians, one of the major turning points occurred around this time, 1100 B.C., and it was known as the Iron Age. And this is the time when iron was invented. And prior to that, we have the Bronze Age. Now, why is this of any significance? Well, who would have the advantage in battle? Someone with an iron sword or someone with a bronze sword? Iron, right? It's, it's iron, man. It's not bronze, man. Right? So, iron is stronger than bronze. And iron weaponry was able to damage the bronze weaponry in battle. And this is significant because the Israelites had bronze weapons and the Philistines had iron weapons. They actually had a monopoly on iron smithing and they developed, developed these advanced weapons for, you know, their, their weapons technology was far superior to the Israelites. And they were highly organized. They were uh, a militaristic people. They knew how to fight. And the Philistines were probably part of this great naval confederacy known as the, the famous Sea Peoples who were migrating sometime near 1200 B.C. And they were organized around five major cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. There's a map of it that we can put up there. It's along the coastal strip of southwestern Canaan. And then we have Israel, just northeast of that. No king, just a farming community of people. And you see how the Israelites were at a serious disadvantage in terms of military technology. So you can imagine how intimidating the Philistines were to the Israelites. And if you can imagine the Israelites getting outfitted to fight, right? They were handed a shovel. And, and they were just probably in desperate prayer. They were about to face the Philistines, a battle-tested people with superior military armament with superior skill. And it's often that in crisis, when our chips are down, that we often look to pray. Looking for something greater than ourselves because some life or death situation is on the horizon. And how many of you prayed before you were Christians about some crisis? Anybody? Quite a few? Yes? We all pray in crisis. Whether you believe in God or not. Right? Some who pray in complete sincerity, and then some who just pray out of ritual, thinking that it does something. Now keep this in mind as we go through chapter 4. Here we are in chapter 4, and, and where we're going to be told about a very dark, yet a faithful day. And it's a day of destruction, but there is hope in this day. It's a strange mix, like for many of us who may be going through a battle, a tragedy, in our own lives, but God is faithful and there is hope in our circumstances. Now before we jump into the verses, I want to frame the chapter 
uh, for you as it can be divided into two different parts. The first sections, verses 1 through 11, and then the second section will be verses 12 through 22. In verses 1 through 11, we're given the account of the battles between Israel and the Philistines. And this section ends with two significant deaths. The death of Hophni and the death of Phinehas. And then there's a second section, verses 12 through 22. We have the reports brought back about those battles. And toward the end of those verses, we have the reports of two more significant deaths. Those of Eli and Phinehas' wife. And throughout these verses, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 12 times. Which tells us that it's a focal point of this narrative. Now let's keep in mind some questions as we go through this text. First question is, what are God's people doing? The second question is, what is God doing? And let me go even a little further by asking, are we functioning on faith or are we functioning on superstition? And this is a really important question for us to ask ourselves in this chapter. So let's start verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. I'm not sure exactly where Ebenezer was. I think it's a little east uh, of where the uh, Philistine army, army uh, gathered, but I know that's where the Scrooge is from. And so you see on the map uh, where Shiloh is. It's under the big eye in Israel. That was the city where people would worship. It was about the middle of the country and, and it was the worship center. And 22 miles west is Aphek, which is about the same distance from here to SFO. So after this serious defeat where 4,000 Israelites died in battle, they ask a very good question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a very good question. But they were a bit too quick to answer by proposing the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And like most Americans think, what do we do to fix this? We can fix this. So the fix, according to verse 3, was the Ark, because they felt it would give them victory. They believed that God would be in the midst of their fighting if they had the ark with them in battle and that the power and the glory were in the ark. And how false that belief was because the power was not there. The glory was not there. It had left. They could not see and they thought bringing in the ark that Moses was commanded to make will solve their problems. They thought that bringing in the ark ensured that God would be there with him with them, that it would guarantee that God was with them. But this is more of a magical view of things, isn't it? And notice that they believe that the Lord defeated them in battle, which is important to remember going forward because this is going to be key to understanding chapters 4 through 6. And we'll get back to this idea in the next couple of weeks. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. 
And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. In verse 4, we're given more details about the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the Ark of the Covenant was a sacred box. It was a hollow box covered with gold about three and three quarters feet long by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. And the cherubim, for those who are unfamiliar with that, are, are those angel-like figures on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant with their wings like that. And, and the Ark sat in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the most holy place, which indicated the most intimate place in the presence of God. And you notice in verse 4 that it describes the Lord of hosts dwelling between the cherubim. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, it describes the ark as the footstool of our God. Now keep that in mind uh, because footstools back then, they were used by kings. And it was a sign of the presence of God who reigns among and over His people. It was a sign of God's very presence. And knowing this about the ark, what were the Israelites thinking here? They're thinking, if we bring in the ark, It'll be just like back in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Right? So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when Israel set out on their journeys and, and the ark was set out first, Moses would say, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. It's as if God Himself was setting out. The ark was the sign of His presence. And the Israelites knew it wasn't an image of God, but that it was a sign that He was there among them. So the ark was very closely associated with the Lord's presence. So you can see what the leadership was thinking in bringing the ark with them in, in the front lines because they remember how central the ark was in places like Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua 4. When the Israelites came in through the land in Joshua 3 and 4, through the Jordan River, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant. And when the priests stepped down into the water, the Jordan was cut off and then the Israel was allowed to go through. And so they remember, you know what? The Ark was there. And, and look at what happened. Look at the victories that we had. And not only did they remember the river stoppage, but then they remembered the land victory in, in Joshua chapter 6. They were marching around Jericho and, and what was at the center of their march? The Ark of the Covenant. So the walls came tumbling down and they were able to have victory in Jericho. So no doubt that the leadership here is thinking about how to get back to those times of victory. They're thinking about how to get back to that old faith, getting back to their roots, getting back to when the Ark went out and was in the middle of the people and leading the people. Continuing on, in verse 4, you notice that Hophni and Phinehas were the priests with the ark. We know that they were corrupt and that an unknown prophet, a man of God, mentioned in chapter 2, predicted their deaths. So you get the scene in your head. Here are the, the corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, escorting in the ark. And Israel is cheering like crazy upon the, the ark's arrival. And so do you see what's happening in your head? Can you just picture it? Do you sense the momentum swing from defeat to that of hope now? You know, Israel was pumped. right? They were juiced. They were filled with enthusiasm. And it was the talk of the nation. Now, how important is momentum in battle? And let's just use contact sports as an analogy. 
Wouldn't you say that momentum in uh, in any contact sport is huge? It has a lot to do with momentum, right? Football, basketball, mixed martial arts, taekwondo, any contact sport, hand-to-hand combat, similar. Right? Momentum is critical and a lot of success is hinged on morale. And if you're defeated in spirit, if you're defeated in mind, then you're just physically defeated already. There's no use going forward. So with the momentum swing over on the side of Israel, there's also a shift of intimidation to the Philistines. Right? A shift has occurred here. Look at this, verse 6. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the crowd, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. There's a shift. And the Philistines knew that God overcame a very powerful Egyptian army. Now check out the Philistines' theology because it's quite a bit off, but they knew the essence of what happened to the Egyptians. Look at verse 8 and how they viewed the Israelite religion. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. The Israelites were and they still are monotheistic. right? They believe in only one God. But this helps shed some light to us about the Philistines who are polytheistic in their belief. They believe in many gods. So there the Philistines were wondering what they were going to do about this. Right? This is a, a battle-tested army. These guys weren't new to war, and they said, oh, well, we'll die fighting. Right? And we're, we're not going to be taken captive by them, and, and we're going to fight until we die. So verse 9, Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 9 is is very similar to a halftime locker room pep talk, isn't it? Right? The Philistines hoped the... To, to reverse that mental momentum back that Israel acquired through bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, which represented to them the very presence of God. But who won the battle? It seems that the good pep talk, the appeal to national pride, was a better motivator than a, a trust in a religious truth like God is with us. Strange story, but typically biblical, isn't this? What happened? Let's look at the latter part of verse 3 again because this addresses the thinking of the Israelites. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Do you see the wrong thinking going on here? They've made the Ark a good luck charm, which it was never intended to be. They were assuming that if God's footstool, that if they had His piece of furniture, that they would have God's power, that they would have God. 
They were assuming that if they had the sign of God's presence, that they had God's very presence. They were assuming that if they had the ark, then they had God under their control and they could coerce God into using His power for their victory because God wouldn't dare lose or He would suffer shame upon Himself. So the Israelites believed they had God right where they wanted Him. But that's not what the ark was intended to be. The Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be a lucky charm. It was never intended to be used in such a way to believe that by having it, that you had God. God can't be manipulated. God's arm can't be twisted. And you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we, uh, we see how wrong their thinking was, right? Verse 3, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Do we function on faith or do we function on superstition? We see that it was superstition for the Israelites in in chapter 4 here. But we're guilty of this at times, aren't we? We, Where we lose our perception to see how we operate under superstition more than we do under faith. And some of our current day examples are, are going to rub you the wrong way that I'm going to bring out. But it's true. Take a look at some of the church's prayer vigils. And I'm not saying church as in regeneration, although I think we ought to strongly take a a, a strong look at ourselves first. But but the church at large, and I'm in no way against prayer, uh, I'm for earnest prayer. But there are times in church situations where where we do a 24-hour prayer or a month of prayers put together. So we put together our, our prayer programs and we divide the time evenly so that every minute is covered or, or every day is covered by people in the church. Now, please do not misunderstand my point. There's nothing wrong with this unless there's wrong thinking behind why we do what we do. If we assume that it has to do with the quantity of prayer that will bombard God, that He then has to hear us, that if we just pump out the amount of prayer, then God will have to come through. That's wrong thinking. How easy it is for something like that to not operate under faith, but be a type of superstition. We have to watch our thinking and how it informs our decisions regarding these round-the-clock prayer vigils. Or how about families? And I've chosen to, to choose the easiest, most non-intimate subjects. Right? How people are dealing with God and how people deal with families. That's why I get paid the big bucks. Back to families. Okay. So, we want our families to turn out right and good, don't we? So, one of the things we have to decide on is school. Public school, private school, charter school, homeschool, Christian school, school, whatever. Right? And then we have our favorite Christian family gurus for child rearing and we follow them religiously. So we look at James Dobson and Les and Leslie Parrott and Bill Gothard and Doug Wilson, etc. And, and if we follow these people, our kids and our families, they will just turn out right. And we can add Dave Ramsey in there and Crown Financial in there for financial planning to, to get our life together financially right and ensure that we're doing finances the right way. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I, I am not against Dobson. I'm not against the Parrots, the Ramsey. I've, actually read a lot of their works and I practice some of what they say. I'm even reading now some of those things because I have two toddlers. 
And, and but but I think sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that we have the formula, that we have it, and if we just stick to the formula, we can guarantee the outcome, which can become another superstition, and operate in such a way that we don't need faith because we have the formula, like the Israelites did with the ark. Or how about the last minute repentance card, where some may think that they'll be able to pull it out right before they die. right? Some who aren't seriously walking with God right now and doing whatever they will please because they think they'll get the opportunity to get things right with God right before they meet Him face to face. That repentance will come and when I need it to, to come at the last second of my physical life or when things get really bad for me, then, then I'll pull out my repentance card. And then God will deliver me then. Are you sure you're ever going to get that chance? driving drunk one night where you smash into the center divider or a tree or another car, you think you'll get that chance to play that magic repentance card? There are a lot of ways that we function on superstition rather than faith. And it didn't just happen to Israel. It happens nowadays. What are the implications of this type of thinking? This superstition? The ark didn't work, did it? It was taken. It was captured by the Philistines. What does this story and the capture of the ark imply about the holiness and the power of religious objects like the ark? Doesn't it appear that the ark of the covenant is weak? Doesn't this lower the reputation of Israel's God who made the covenant? So what are the implications of this? Well, it seems the Bible is telling us that God will rather suffer shame then allow us to carry on a false relationship with Him. God did suffer shame, didn't He? The ark was captured, and to all of Philistia and Israel, it makes God look out to be like a defeated God. The ark was captured, and it looks as though God couldn't even prevent the Philistines from capturing the ark. The Philistines will look upon the event as Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's powerless. He didn't do anything with us. We killed tens of thousands of those guys. But God will rather suffer shame than allow us to carry on a false relationship with Him. He'll allow embarrassment upon Himself if He can get us to walk by faith rather than by walking with good luck charms. God will allow us to be disappointed in Him if it wakes us up to the God that He really is. Now, has God ever let you down in your expectations? What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Because if God has disappointed you, it it just may be, if you're really aware to what He is doing, it just may be that it's precisely right there in, in your letdown that He's ready to teach you something important about the God that He really is. So are we living under faith? Or are we living under superstition? In verse 11, what happened to the corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas? Do you recall what the man of God told Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 33 and 34? But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. When God speaks, it will happen. 
It might take time, and, and here it appears to have taken decades, but God's Word and the justice He represents will prevail. So Eli's sons are dead, and verse 11 tells us that the ark was captured. The next section, verses 12-22, through begs the question, is this about tragedy, or is this about faithfulness? How are we going to look at this? Is this just a tragic event, or, or is this about God's faithfulness? Verse 12, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli, sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sounds of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. This all looks like tragedy, doesn't it? The man of Benjamin running in with ripped clothes and dirt on his head, Eli's heart trembling and anxiously waiting, and you can see or you can imagine the anxiety of Eli as he couldn't physically see, nor could he spiritually see. He couldn't see the man's clothes torn in anguish as he was running back. He couldn't see the dirt on his head. All Eli could do was hear the results. He could hear the commotion and the outcry of the city. And this is tragic. And we're told that Eli's heart was trembling, was disturbed for the ark. We see that Eli was physically blind in verse 15, but he was also spiritually blind. The words dealing with sight or eyes in the Bible, they, they have dual meanings. Right? There's the physical sense and then there's the spiritual sense, meaning the perception or understanding to see spiritually. Now quickly turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7. Because I want to point out a difference between Eli and Moses. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Eyes are metaphors for perception. Verse 13, he is watching. He's attempting to be perceptive, to understand, even though we're told he's blind, physically blind in verse 15. See, eyes represent perception to biblical authors. And so we see the difference between Eli and Moses' physical and spiritual perception. It's tragic for Eli, isn't it? Eli had some redeeming qualities though, didn't he? He was used of God with Hannah and he gave Samuel excellent advice regarding hearing and obeying God in Samuel chapter 2. However, we do see Eli's leadership guide Israel into this spiritual ruin. We find that Eli was certainly a nice guy who loved the things of God. We see that he was moral and that he didn't sleep around with the women that his son slept around with, but he, but he did partake of the meat that his son's servants stole from the worshipers that came to sacrifice to God, that came to worship God at Shiloh. We see that he may have been a de decent man who didn't get angry at Samuel for delivering this terrible news to him, but he was an imperceptive ruler. He didn't discipline those under his authority which led to the destruction of a nation. And we see that he still didn't quite understand and he didn't quite perceive God. He was more concerned with the ark than the tens of thousands of people who lost their lives and the families who lost fathers and sons and brothers. And he wasn't even concerned for his own two sons. He was concerned with the ark. You know, it's good to be concerned with the articles that represent God's presence, yet religious articles are not more important than people. 
God cares more about people than He does His footstool. Verse 16, Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off his seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel forty years. The news that caused Eli's death was the capture of the ark. It wasn't the slaughter of all those people who were under his care. It wasn't the death of his two sons. It was the ark. We're just given tragedy after tragedy. A tragic messenger, a tragic leader, and then now we have a tragic birth. Verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law Phineas's wife was with child due to be delivered, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear for your son, for you have, a, you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. We see tragedy in the death of Phineas's wife and the name of her child. The word Ichabod means no glory. What a depressing name. Right? How would you like to grow up with that name? Hey, no glory. Oh, what? Right? So, why did she name her child No Glory? Because she was more concerned with the death of her husband, the death of her father-in-law, and the capture of the ark. And she says, the glory has departed from Israel. She was imperceptive as well. To the family of the priesthood, the key to God's presence was the ark, the symbol of God. But the Bible disagrees with this. It is the hearing of His Word, His living Word, the flesh Word that we talked about last week. Not a symbol or an object. God's glory had been rare for many years. He left a long time ago. right? And we continue to see tragedy in, in that the author focused on the capture of the ark four times. right? Look at verses 17, 19, 21, and 22. The sign of God's very present is not present with His people. But are these verses really tragedy? Or are these verses really about faithfulness? Because something that was absent was returning through Samuel. And it may be hard to tell because of all the tragedy, but there's good news. God is being faithful. In all of this tragedy, can you see God's faithfulness? Verse 1, Chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What was it before? Chapter 3, verse 1, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. The glory already departed from Israel, but Phineas's wife didn't see that. The whole family of the priesthood didn't see that. The most religious people didn't see that. You look at chapter 3, verse 21. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
it started becoming more frequent from that point in verse 21 to verse 1 of chapter 4. The word was coming through Samuel. And it's, it, it wasn't the, like last week, it wasn't the preached word, because they still had that. The priests were probably still teaching. Most, well, probably, yes. And they still had the scriptures, they still had the scrolls. It was the flesh word. The living word. And according to the narrator, the nation was in better condition than before Though they really, they lost really, really badly in battle. They lost tens of thousands of lives. They lost their priests. They lost their spiritual leader. But the most religious people couldn't see that. The ones who taught the word, the ones who studied and knew it best could not see. They could not perceive because they didn't have the living word with them. And in, in the beginning of the sermon, I asked, how many of you prayed be, before you were a Christian about some crisis? So my follow-up question is, did God answer you? And if so, your, your prayers were heard because you actually talked to God instead of just doing some religious activity. The difference is an authentic communication with God versus a religious action. What the religious would deem as prayer, but it really isn't prayer because it's not talking with God. It's just a routine. It's something that's isn't dynamic or meaningful. It's just a religious act. What's the difference? The difference is a relationship versus superstition. The difference is an intimate connection versus magic. Are we really praying to God or are we trying to manipulate God? We see that Eli, Phineas' wife, the priestly family were serious about religion. They were deeply religious people, just like many people are today. But did it help people? No. Did it please God? No. Were their concerns the same as God's concerns? No. So what good is their religion? It's about a relationship with God, not a superstition about God. The priests and the people were religious people. Look at these verses, 5, 13, 18, 21, and 22. Let me read them real quick. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. They are very religious people. They believe in that thing. They believe that the presence of God is in that thing. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on the seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He's extremely religious. He's not waiting for his sons to come back alive. He's not waiting for people to come. He's waiting for the ark. He's religious. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off his seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He died for the ark. Not because he was in despair of losing his kids or anything. Verse 21-22, Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. These are religious people. But they didn't know jack cheese about God. It had nothing to do with God. It seems that the most irreligious person in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is God. Now how can 1 Samuel chapter 4 be about faithfulness of God? Look at, look at the promises here. Hophni and Phinehas died, right? 
So look at verse 17. Eli was told Hophni and Phinehas are dead. 19. Her husband, Phinehas, was dead. This is good news. This is God being faithful to His Word. You recall the prophet that came to Eli in chapter 2, verse 34, and he said, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. And it came to pass. Their deaths were a fulfillment of God's Word to Samuel. In Samuel chapter 3, verses 11-14, through 14, God didn't mention Hophni and Phinehas by name, but God did say He would bring judgment on the house of Eli. And we see it here in chapter 4. And when God brought about the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas, He was fulfilling His Word. But you say, this is a word of judgment though. Yes, it is. But, but God is being faithful to His Word. And this is the faithfulness of God. And this is the goodness of God to His people because He was taking away the corrupt leadership of His people. The corrupt leadership that drove His people away from Him and Him away from His people. God removed that corrupt leadership. That's the goodness of God operating in this tragedy, even though the events around this, His, His faithfulness, they're very tragic. You know, God was just wiping the slate clean. Right? God was doing good to Israel in the end, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do you good in the end. That's what God was doing through this tragedy. Faithfulness often comes in the wrappings of tragedy. What looks like tragedy and the destruction of His people in chapter 4 is not the case. By eliminating Hophni and Phinehas in faithfulness to His prophetic Word, God is taking the first step into restoring His people. And we might have a hard time seeing it or understanding it because we usually want faithfulness absent of tragedy. But God has other things in mind for us to gain that we can't gain without tragedy. And we tend to want the, the bleeding to stop while God wants the bleeding to continue to cleanse the wound. God is cleansing the wounds of His people so that they can be restored to health. And this doesn't seem to be a very happy passage, does it? Just a lot of death and a lot of Stuff happening that just doesn't seem very nice. And chapter 4 seems to be telling us that sometimes God must leave His people before He returns to them. May the Lord help us see where we are acting under superstition and lead us to live lives of faith. May we walk by faith rather than by magic. May we see God's faithfulness in the middle of our tragedies, in the middle of our messes, in the darkness of our lives. Let's pray. God, in every decision that our church makes, in every thing that we bring before You, Lord, I pray that it's not from a point of manipulation, but truly seeking what You want us to do. I ask, Lord, that our church be a church that walks by faith that in the midst of tragedies that we are reminded about Your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, Amen.